Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. This episode is a little different than my other episodes as it's available for ASHA CEUs through Tassel Continuing Education. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs, then stay on until the very end because that is where I provide information on how to register for automatic ASHA reporting. Before we get started, we have some information to share. Let's start with the financial disclosures. I have the following relevant financial and non-financial relationships to disclose. I have ownership interest in Speechy Side Up LLC and Tassel Learning LLC, and I receive royalties from the Luna's What to Do book series. I'm also a member of ASHA's Special Interest Group 12. Dr. Olivia Jensen has the following relevant financial relationships to disclose. She receives payment from the Speechy Side Up podcast for this presentation. She's a salaried employee at Speech Solutions Arizona and McColgan and Associates Inc. She is also a Savories affiliate. Her non-financial relationships include doing PR and social media for the Dysphagia Outreach Project. She's a member of ASHA, Med SLP Collective, and the Mayo membership. Now let's talk about the learning outcomes. By the end of this pod course, you'll be able to identify three signs and symptoms of childhood apraxia of speech. You'll be able to describe the causes of CAS, at least three evidence-based methods for treating CAS, and explain three ways that COVID has impacted therapy for this population. And here is the agenda. We're going to start with brief introductions and backgrounds, then we'll get into a description of the signs and symptoms and assessment tools for CAS. We'll talk about the causes of CAS, and then we'll get into a discussion about the evidence-based methods that research proves to be effective for this population. We'll also talk about how COVID-19 has affected therapy for this population and wrap up with a discussion of helpful resources. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Olivia Jensen, a speech language pathologist practicing in Tucson, Arizona. Olivia completed her master's and doctorate degree at Northwestern University, and she currently practices in home health and private practice environments. In her private practice, she treats both pediatrics and adults. And today we're gonna be talking about childhood apraxia of speech specifically. Now that we've got all that covered, let's get started. Hi, Olivia. Thank you so much for coming today. Hi. Hi. How are you? Thank you for having me. I am great. I am excited to learn more about this topic, but let's start by telling the listeners who you are, where you come from and where you're at today. Absolutely. Um, so I am Olivia Standa Jensen. Um, I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. So that is why I chose to go to Northwestern. Um, I'm very much a homebody. <laughs> um, I went there for my undergrad, my master's and my doctorate. Um, I had primarily been focused on adult to geriatric care in the first um, half of my career um, in an inpatient setting. And as I started to get older, I realized that I missed working with pediatrics a lot. (laughs) Um, And I wanted that variability in my population. And so when I moved to Arizona, and started working in a private practice, I made it kind of my passion, um, and my vendetta in order to get that um, 
population across the board of my day-to-day -to, -day to see that variability in patient care. Um, and a large part of that motivation came from somebody very special to me um, who was two years old now, but when they started to um, speak and started to hit those milestones, I noticed some red flags pop up. Um, and I, of course, am very close with them. And um, I saw the red flags that were leading me to believe that it was childhood apraxia of speech. So um, over the past couple of years, I've dug really, really deep um, into this topic of research and treatment in order to, one, provide um, the best care for them, but also to provide the best care because I have a large population actually in my private practice. Um, so I'm so excited to talk about this today and just giving a little shout out to the little girl who calls me Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's often those personal experiences that kind of guide us into our niches, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so thank you for sharing that. Let's dive into this topic. Let's start with the signs and symptoms of childhood apraxia speech. What should SLPs and parents even be looking out for? Yes, absolutely. Um, so just a little background on um, childhood apraxia speech, because the terminology seems very daunting, um, especially if you're given this um, for one of your kiddos. So apraxia of speech is sometimes call, also called verbal apraxia, uh, developmental apraxia of speech, or um, evil, even verbal dyspraxia. So lots of different terminology for it. Please know that this um, diagnosis, it's very rare. Um, it's about 0.1% of the general population at large. Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, and so what we have to understand about childhood apraxia of speech, and sometimes I'm going to just say throughout this um, podcast is just call it CAS. That's a very common acronym for it. Um, childhood apraxia of speech is very lengthy. So CAS, in order to understand it a little more, um, we need to understand how speech works. So in order to speak, the brain sends messages to your articulators, and these include areas of the mouth, such as the tongue, the lips, the teeth, the gum ridge, and the hard soft palate. <laughs> Lots of different portions of our mouth. Um, these messages are essentially um, to tell the muscle groups how to move um, in order to accurately make certain speech sounds. When a child has apraxia of speech, um, the message was not interpreted by the muscles correctly. So the child may not be moving their lips or their tongue in the right way. And I wanna make this exceptionally clear that this is in no part due to a low muscle tone at all. Um, this is completely related to the brain misfiring messages to these muscle groups, okay? Um, so therefore, apraxia is typically where a child knows exactly what they want to say, but it isn't coming out how they want to say it. <laughs> and that's where kind of the frustration and lies. So what can parents be looking for? So the difficulty in diagnosing CAS is that unfortunately, symptoms vary 
dramatically at different stages of development. Um, this is very hard to diagnose even for, even for very seasoned SLPs um, like myself. I, I said at the beginning, I had to go very, very deep into research in order to provide the best um, evaluations and practices for my kiddos that I'm seeing. Um, but here are a few things that we could look for. So much research has been done, um, and I'm going to reference their research a lot, but PK Hall um, has done a lot of research in this area of CAS. And first, um, they have seen that there's little to no uh, canonical babbling and variegated babbling during that first year of life. So we talk about seeing developmental milestones for kiddos and how they slowly progress through those speech milestones where they're just playing around with their voice, et cetera. And then it goes into repetitions of phonemes, mama, baba, et cetera. Um, we see that that is not very um, excessive in that first year of life. Then we also see a very slow expansion of vocabulary during the second year of life. And that was um, talked a lot about um, with Mason uh, at all in 2002 in their research. So what happens when these kiddos do start to speak? So during speech, um, inconsistent errors of consonant and vowels in repeated production of syllables or words is very, very common. So typically speech sound errors mainly comprise of large number of consonant errors. So um, when we're looking at those errors, remember there's a big difference in how we produce consonants and how we produce vowels. Omissions um, or the leaving out of sounds are far more prevalent than substitution of sounds. And again, that was seen um, in the research by uh, PK Hall again. So we do start to see um, through a lot of this information and research that there are some um, patterns that are emerging in these kiddos. But if you're listening to me and you're a speech pathologist, you're probably thinking, oh goodness gracious, this is sounding like a phonological process. <laughs> um, and how do we tell the difference, right? And that was probably one of my hardest um, difficulties at the beginning because a lot of these kiddos do look like they have severe um, phonological processes at play. Um, but there's other predominant characteristics that we can look for. And one major one is groping. So there are actually two types of groping. So first, when we talk about groping, we talk about it in a pre-vocalic sense. So that's a static state of articulated, articulatory positioning um, that occurs without any sound production. So no voice at all. So that means their um, movements are not um, <clears throat> as predictive, but we're not speaking at that point. 
Then uh, we can go into searching articulatory behavior, and that takes place during sound production um, with the child attempting to find the desired articulatory position uh, to the sound they want to produce. So in, essentially, this is the characteristic symptom um, of where children make multiple attempts to make a single sound in somewhat of a trial and error format. And it comes out differently each time. So for example, if a kiddo is trying to say the word moo, <laughs> um, it might come out as boo, shoo, loo, coo, Etc. So each time they're really trying for their target sound because as a reminder, they know exactly what they want to say. They know their target word is moo. Um, but that breakdown from the messaging from their brain to their articulators is not allowing them to say that sound correctly each and every time. So that's that searching articulatory behavior. And then finally, another um, key signs and symptoms is that inappropriate prosody of speech. So intonation, stress, and rhythm of speech is somewhat distorted. So things you can look out for are somewhat of a robotic like producing each syllable at one time with equal stress. They're somewhat compensating um, for difficulties that they're seeing within themselves, even at a young age. Um, we also have that aprosodic um, pattern where we have decreased intonation patterns, somewhat monotone. Um, the dysprotic, where we're using prosody that does not match the expected intonation pattern that we would see with certain um, typical developing speech. It's somewhat slow and choppy. And then on another end, it can be like very, very rapid or far too fast. So you see kind of there's a large variability on that spectrum. Um, so again, going back to what are the signs and symptoms, it's really difficult, um, even though we see some patterns in some kiddos, um, CAS really doesn't fit a cookie cutter pattern um, of diagnoses. It, um, there's a lot of different factors that go into it, um, predominantly that groping, inappropriate prosody um, and inconsistent um, speech errors that all are really those red flags that we're looking for as parents and as providers. Wow. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing all of those. That's very, very helpful. So you're Absolutely. saying that the top three uh, symptoms that, you know, might differentiate this from like a phonological disorder would be those inconsistent errors, the groping and the inappropriate prosody. Okay. Awesome. So I'm just like curious, this is probably more of an opinion piece, unless you know about the research, but it's really fascinating that there's little to no canonical or variegated babbling when they're younger. Um, why do you think that is? That's a really, really great question. Um, 
I think that because during that first year of life, um, really the interactive speech patterns between um, parents and children, we really, um, that factor dives very deep into the causes of um, CAS. And of course, um, Hall et al. really goes above and beyond on <laughs> um, talking about this issue where they're finding those patterns early, early on in life. Um, but I think it has somewhat to do with a possible hypothesis of um, our feedback system. And are these kiddos actually, um, do they have appropriate forms of feedback um, in order to hit these milestones such as variegated babbling, et cetera? Feedback from their own systems or the caregivers? Um, from their own systems. Wow. Okay. And a little bit of caregivers because of auditory feedback, of course. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. Um, what about assessment tools? Can you just maybe mention some that you typically use for this population if you suspect CAS? Yes. So there are a lot of different um, tools that we can use. Um, and for my private, for every private practice is different. Um, and what I do in my personal practice um, is I do a lot of uh, informal assessments. Um, this is in part because we're very limited by time that we have um, in order to complete a standardized assessment. Um, but if I do have the appropriate allotted time and um, the child is old enough, um, so typically if I see a kiddo um, uh, two um, or older, I will apply the Kaufman speech uh, praxis test. Um, this is just a norm reference diagnostic testing um, in order to identify and treat uh, childhood apraxia speech. So that would be one of my go-tos. <laughs> Great. And then in terms of informal assessment, what, what do those look like? So those informal assessments that I do, especially if they're younger or they don't have um, quite the same attention span. So those I would be running through, essentially looking for those red flags. So I would be checking their prosody of speech, um, whether first, usually I do it in um, a very play-based format with music um, and songs that they're familiar with. Um, and then we would be looking at the characteristics of their speech um, and tracking their, their errors in sound. So I have a screener here um, where we're running through age-based appropriate phonemes, um, depending on how old they are. And um, we do it very informally through um, games and with toys. And I'm having usually the parents interact with the children to increase their verbal output because of course, it's scary when someone they don't know um, is trying to interact with them. So mm -hmm. I'm really taking notes on the go um, and seeing what verbalizations they have and if there's any um, articulatory patterns that are taking place um, or speech errors that are taking place and um, how it looks with regards to if there's any groping denoted, etc. So really looking for those three primary red flags. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. So you briefly mentioned or alluded to like causes of CAS. So can yeah. we talk about that now? What are the causes of it? 
the known causes, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And that's the difficult part. And yeah, you're, if you're listening, you're probably getting an idea of, oh gosh, we need more research in this area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's very, very true. So um, CAS uh, can um, be the result of a brain or neurological um, condition such as a stroke, um, infection, or traumatic brain injury um, and younger individuals. But CAS um, may also occur as a symptom of a genetic disorder. Um, So a syndrome of a metabolic condition, for example, it can occur more frequently in children um, with uh, galactosemia. And this is just a very rare uh, metabolic condition. So those are some um, diagnoses that we know of. But typically, though, uh, the cause of CAS is pretty unknown, but recent research is getting us closer to understanding where the breakdown is occurring. Um, So I talked a little bit about this before, but um, when uh, simulating uh, the learning stages in speech acquisition, I'm already getting tongue-tied, sweet. (laughs) (laughs) So there was some research completed by Turband et al. in 2009, and they used this very complex system to kind of simulate how a child learns stages of their speech. And they found that CAS can, in fact, result um, from an increased reliance on auditory feedback control uh, due to incorrect or imprecise uh, feed-forward commands. So that's where I was discussing that uh, feedback loop where they're finding that there are several forms of feedback that kiddos use in order to learn speech appropriately um, and the complex series of movements that create our speech. Um, So one, auditory feedback. Um, kiddos are using their hearing to judge if the word they are saying is correct. So they're listening um, to their parents or their caregivers, and they're also listening to themselves. And if there's a breakdown in that loop, um, we're not able to appropriately judge um, how the words are being said correctly. And then we also have sensory feedback um, or proprioception. So that's just um, where where, um, a child knows where their articulators are physically located and how they move. And if there's a breakdown um, in how they're feeling their tongue or their lips move in um, a cohesive fashion, then of course that feedback loop is broken. So those two main auditory feedback and proprioception feedback, they're finding that when those uh, feed forward commands are broken, then that's where CAS can occur. Wow, very interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those. So I'm just Absolutely. thinking about like um, adult patients who may have had a stroke and you get acquired apraxia in that case. Mm-hmm. It, is there any sense that this is like a similar process that happens with children with CAS? Obviously, maybe it's not a stroke, but something like damage that happens to that area or not at all? Um, that's a great question. And I think the main difference between acquired um, apraxia is, of course, acquired apraxia typically is 
um, more predominantly seen in adults. There is a um, specific known cause of um, when it occurred, et cetera. Um, I, but we do see those similar patterns um, that have developed. And so I, I think that the difficulty with childhood apraxia of speech is that one, the child doesn't have a known baseline <laughs> that they're they're just developing their speech <laughs> as for going. So I think that is what makes it so difficult for childhood apraxia of speech to be diagnosed earlier on um, because kiddos do develop their speech patterns at different rates, right? Um, we have my developmental milestones for uh, motor speech and for language um, and there are large ranges. And um, sometimes kiddos could be very severely um, De, uh, delayed in their motor speech, but have consistent um, phonological processes at play, and they could get misdiagnosed with childhood apraxia of speech. So I think that um, they do have very similar patterns um, in uh, acquired apraxia, such as that porosity, um, the breakdown in motor speech planning, etc. Um, it's just really the known cause is what is a large difference in the two. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. So let's get into treatment now. I'm sure that's like what a lot of people are excited to hear more about. What does the <laughs> research say about treating this population? I know you've done a deep dive. Yes, absolutely. So overall, um, the goal of treatment is to help your child say sounds, words, and sentences more clearly, right? Um, for um, every practice, um, your child should um, be able to learn how to plan the movements they need to say um, for certain sounds and how to make the movements um, in the right way at the right time. So that essentially is treatment in a nutshell, right? The skeleton of what we do. Um, how do we do that though is the hard part, especially in these young kiddos, because a lot of them that I'm seeing um, are around two years old um, and older. So um, doing exercises to make the mouth muscles stronger will not help. So I want to make that abundantly clear. Again, <laughs> um, I get this question a lot. Um, the mouth muscles are not weak in children with CAS. Um, so working on how to move those muscles uh, will help the sound. So if, if you're trying to do any program um, that is working on resistance training or um, movements of your uh, articulators without any sound, these are not gonna help. Um, so we really, really need to steer clear of those. <laughs> um, so your child um, must be practicing speaking in order to get better at it. Um, it helps to use all the senses when learning um, about how to say sounds. Um, so that means it kind of goes back to that um, cause and that auditory and sensory feedback, right? Kiddos um, are always looking on the, the whole picture right? How are you making those sounds? Where are your articulators moving? Um, so we always want to provide that big picture. Um, there is a lot of emerging research um, that talks about the um, different techniques in order to 
um, improve CAS. So I'm going to deep dive into a couple of those um, very superficially to not overwhelm anybody. Um, so one technique to use um, is multi-sensory cueing. So um, these are techniques used in a variety of sensory cues to help uh, a child hear, uh, see, and feel, and understand the target speech sound and movement um, gestures being requested of them as they practice. So again, going back to using all your visual, tactile, and auditory cueing possible. Then we go um, into the integral stimulization where um, approaches uh, that use a well-defined and structured hierarchy of speech sounds and targets um, and require the child to imitate utterances. Um, so utterances meaning syllables, words, or phrases um, where the SLP will model um, for the child um, to essentially look, listen, and do what I do. Um, and that's what we use a lot in our practice. Um, so in this approach, the child's auditory attention is focused, um, highly focused on listening to the words and that uh, visualization that the SLP is providing is to really look at the child needs to look at the clinician's face. <laughs> um, look at how that clinician or SLPs uh, articulators are actually moving. So again, going back to providing all of those possible cues for the speech targets. Um, we also use a progressive approximation. Um, this is uh, somewhat of a technique for shaping um, where we are using um, speech productions that children are currently able to produce. So if a child is able to uh, accurately and consistently produce um, certain phonies like B, P, and M words, um, then through various forms of feedback and practice, we're attempting to shape that child's movements and gestures um, into a closer and closer approximation of any target word we're trying to get to. So we're really just shaping uh, where they're successful and then leading that success into other um, different targets that are close in proximity. Then we also have um, uh, phonetic placement. So techniques um, that provide verbal information and instruction um, to the child with regards to what um, physically to do with their tongue, lips, and jaw during speech attempts. Um, I have somebody in my office that I call Mr. Mouth, <laughs> <laughs> and it's essentially just a model of a large mouth, <laughs> and I use my hands um, in order to replace the tongue and show them where their um, large articulator of the tongue and their jaw moves for certain speech sounds. So it's just another um, visual aid that I use with regards to this phonetic placement. That's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then we go into uh, tactile facilitation. So sometimes we're going to need to provide that 
physical touch to kiddos um, with their articulators where we're um, manipulating the head, the face and the lips in order for them to have a better understanding of how does this sound feel? Um, because remember, they're um, having difficulty finding that placement consistently um, and really moving, physically moving their articulators um, into the correct placement is sometimes um, a necessity. And um, so we just provide that assistance um, occasionally throughout, um, usually just through light touch, et cetera, nothing extremely invasive. Um, then we have prosodic facilitation, which uses a lot of rhythm and melody. So I said at the beginning, I love um, in my uh, uh, informal evaluation process to do a lot of songs, um, any songs that they're familiar with or they enjoy, um, to really use rhythm and melody to provide kind of um, an increased improvement in timing um, and rhythmic structure. And then finally, gestural cueing. So if you come into one of our sessions, um, there are going to be a lot of hand movements, <laughs> um, not only trying to get the kiddo to look at um, placement cues for my articulators and getting their attention up to my mouth, um, but also just general um, represented um, gestures such as signing ASL um, to provide them other forms of communication um, that can reduce any frustration that can occur throughout the session. So lots of different gestural cueing. Um, so there's, as you can see, a wide, wide variety of techniques um, that are used throughout a session. And typically, depending on the age, um, if they're younger, um, this is all in a play-based format. So if you're a parent watching one of these sessions, you might be going, what is being accomplished right now? <laughs> um, but look for all of those different uh, types of cues that are being provided. But if it is an older kiddo who's able to do a little more structured work, um, you would see this in a very um, different setting. So there, I love that there's a lot more research right now on what type of frequency um, we need to be treating these kiddos at. And there is an emerging research um, support for the need to provide three to five individual sessions per week for children with apraxia as compared uh, to the traditional less um, intensive one, one to two sessions per week, which I typically do for uh, my other kiddos with perhaps just a language delay um, or just articulation, et cetera. So that has been shown through a wide variety um, of articles by Hall, Skinder, and Meredith, and Strand and Skinder, um, who have looked at that frequency of treatment, what's best practice. Um, but children with apraxia of speech required, um, Campbell et al. found that they required 81% more 
individual treatment sessions than the children with severe phonological disorders in order to achieve a similar functional outcome. That's such a drastic difference. <laughs> um, 81% more individual treatment sessions. So it just goes to show that the need for that high frequency um, and high repetitious environment is what where we see the most success um, in our treatment for this population at large. Wow, you shared so much great information. I want to summarize the different techniques that you shared. And then I have like follow-up questions. So, Mm -hmm. um, you said that the different techniques that you can use to improve CAS include multi-sensory cueing, integral stimulation, progressive approximation, phonetic placement, tactile facilitation, prosodic facilitation, gestural cueing, and Mm -hmm. that's it, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> that was a lot. I'm it's, sorry. It's a lot, but it's great. It gives people a lot of information to look for. And you shared some great research articles, which we will make sure to include in the pod course handout as well. So um, the integral stimulation, I know you said it's look, listen, and do what I do. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for a lot of kiddos that are just starting out with treatment, um, I typically, depending on their severity and where their current baseline is at, uh, we'll typically start with a consonant vowel or a vowel consonant target. Um, So that just means um, we're looking for words or targets um, such as, let's say, for example, Um, I guess I already gave the example moo, (laughs) right? Um, You can see that I have a lot of farm animals that I'm going to be playing with today. (laughs) Um, So that M-O-O, right? Um, Or a different in (laughs) phonetic translation. But so simply what I would do um, is I would just model um, that sound. I'd first say, you know, whatever their name is, look at me, look at me, listen to me. And then I'd say, do what I do, moo, and pointing to my mouth. And there are very visual cues that I do depending on the sounds that are in my target. So for moo, I'd be taking my finger and running it right across my lips, showing that my lips are closed for that mmm sound and the child should be looking at me the entire time. Um, If they don't have that attention or focus, I try to get other things that will bring their attention to my lips. Um, Sometimes I take a toy um, or a very high target (laughs) thing is my bubbles. So I'll just take the bubbles right around my lips and show them again, look, moo. And then I'm going to have them do what I do. So they're going to try to um, hit that target sound. And usually I do a reward system where if they want the toy that I have, um, they're using that sound in order to gain the toy. So over time, as the child's uh, skills tend to improve, um, I'll just vary the timing of the repetition. So again, we want that very high frequency repetition. So I'll try to increase the amount of uh, times the child says that target um, before they get the reward. So you look, look, listen, do what I do. Give me five, moo, and then we'll see if we can do moo, 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 
moo and then they get the toy. So we're working on building up that coordination and increasing that success rate to get that target accurately produced. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for providing that example. I think it's nice for people because they're listening to be able to see what that looks like. Um, and then I wanted to ask about the frequency. I mean, that's significant three to five individual sessions and requiring 81% more than children with severe phonological disorders, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that is what alarmed me too, because my frequency was really never that high for this population. Um, and until I started to really, um, go into the research, it's where it became apparent. And then I started to see that in my practice where patients, um, uh, sorry, uh, this is what happens when you treat adults geriatric when kiddos and their families would come in and, um, ask me, you know, how often should I be working on this? How often should I be coming in? And that's the difficulty, um, with speech therapy is we only see these children, um, for just about 5% of their entire verbal output for a week, right? Um, if we're seeing them one session or two sessions a week, the the primary load is on the parents. Um, and at the forefront, there's so much teaching and learning and modeling going on that needs to be replicated in the home environment in order to see the most success. So I found that when we have a really higher front load of frequency, um, as suggested by the research of about three to five sessions per week, um, we see a large jump in um, that accuracy um, from these kids because then not only are they getting that high frequency repetition that's needed in our practice, but I know that the parents are more likely to implement what they're seeing at home because they're also getting more practice, more exposure um, with the cueing and the appropriate um, methodology that we're using that they can implement at home. And I think that's so helpful for them because it's just like any doctor's appointment that we go into. We're given so much information um, and we probably walk out of there thinking, oh gosh, what did they say about X, Y, or Z? <laughs> and we don't have that ability to go back in and ask more questions, but by allowing the more frequent um, sessions, we do have that capability where if they're coming in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for example, um, they come in Monday, implement Tuesday, and then questions can come back to us on Wednesday. And then again, re repeat that cycle. So I've just found that it's not only more beneficial for the child, but for the caregivers themselves as well. Yeah, I imagine. Thank you for sharing that. So I, I remember I keep going back to the geriatric population because I don't have quite as much experience working, um, with CAS. Um, but mm -hmm. I do remember like, for instance, um, with aphasia, that intense treatment was also highly recommended, but for a period of time. So is there like a recommended period of time, um, that you are doing this intensive therapy or is it like forever? 
That's a great question. So it's definitely not forever. Good. <laughs> um, it definitely is not forever. Um, I don't have any specific numerics on a uh, time, uh, a range on how long that frequency should be held um, because I found that it's very different for every kid. Um, I have a lot of different, um, I guess, pre-planned paths for kids, depending upon that first initial boost of their speech once they start treatment. Um, but yeah, I, I really have seen no patterns or denoted in the research on how long um, that uh, rate should go for their sessions. I think it's just so um, dependent upon how they respond to treatment. Um, and if there are any other things that arise um, in that we denote in treatment. I've had a lot of kiddos who um, presented with CAS, and then we've seen other difficulties comes up, come up in um, other areas such as social pragmatics, et cetera. Um, attention is a big one. And all of those areas, of course, will impact um, the plan of care. So it's really um, going to be on an individual basis. Um, but for the majority, I would say there's a large pattern where we have a very um, large front load of sessions and then we start to taper off, especially when the parents get more and more comfortable with providing the same support in the home environment. Great point. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. So we have a very interesting phenomenon that has happened recently. I don't know if you would call it phenomenon, <laughs> but COVID, and it's lasted way longer than any of us have expected. So it's still topic that we're talking about a year later. And I imagine that it's impacted therapy for this population tremendously. So can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, my practice, um, just like probably anywhere else, um, has been severely impacted by COVID. Um, and it, we really didn't think that it would impact certain populations that we treat um, in the ways that it did. I guess this is just everything's so new. <laughs> so how would COVID um, impact this population? And um, research has shown that uh, children can begin lip reading as early as eight months of age, which just really blows my mind. <laughs> um, being um, a mother upcoming in June, um, it, I really have been diving into the developmental milestones um, of early, early on. And um, as stated before, um, with CAS, we need that visual feedback, right? Kiddos, if they're lip reading um, as early as eight months, um, they need to be able to see those placement cues. And so lip reading at this age um, has been shown to correspond with the onset um, of that previously mentioned uh, babbling suggesting that babies begin lip reading because they become interested in speech and language. So therefore, when people wear masks, mm. so going back to COVID, 
when we're wearing masks around children of that age, this visual cue of lip reading is limited or lost. Wow. So you can imagine how much that's going to impact a child's development, especially if they're predisposed to a diagnosis such as CAS. Um, so it gets into this whole idea of, okay, well, I need to keep myself and my child safe. Um, I have to wear a mask, Olivia. What in the world do I possibly do then? And an option that has been presented is a clear mask, right? Um, you've probably seen them. Lots of people are wearing them. I think that it is just such a wonderful idea um, to provide kiddos um, or even a large group of other populations, such as the hard of hearing, um, to lip read, right? Um, but I, oh, I feel like I'm just constantly like a bearer of bad news. <laughs> um, but do clear mass help? Yes and no. So they do allow us to provide a better visual uh, cue for children to lip read, right? You can see somewhat see the articulators more clearly versus an opaque or surgical mask. But then this leads into a second problem. So masks have been shown um, to attenuate sound by three to 12 decibels um, and also result um, in low pass filtering of high frequency sounds. So what does that mean? <laughs> You're probably already aware that when we wear a mask, we sound different. So they're saying that masks, depending of course upon what style and um, what material, et cetera. That's why there's a large range of three to 12 decibels, but that masks, uh, no matter what format, are going to drop the volume of our voice and that they're also going to somewhat dampen our ability to make really, really high frequency sounds. And those high frequency sounds, of course, are being learned <laughs> by kiddos at that age. And if we're not providing them um, those phonemes, um, then it becomes difficult um, for kiddos to learn them appropriately. So um, that is what we really need to consider. So those F sounds, those S sounds, even TH, those are all are really um, high frequency sounds that can become difficult for them to fully grasp. Um, so just keeping this in mind that um, it could be more difficult to understand speech um, and some, even some just generally higher pitched um, individual voices, um, like a female voice or a young child um, with masks on. So I did not see that COVID implication coming into play, of course, but it is very present. So I use a wide variety of masks in my practice. Um, and I'm hoping, I know that they're going to be around for a really long time. So I'm hoping that 
just as we talked about with the other techniques um, that the vast majority um, of us are using a multitude of cueing, um, such as tactile and visual in order to kind of circumvent these implications that have been thrust upon us, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming you're back in person just based on like what you shared. Was there a point in time where you were doing online with your clients and how was that? Um, I have actually always been in person. Okay. I have never, um, I actually did teletherapy. Um, I used to live in California and I continued to do teletherapy for them, but that was even before COVID hit. Okay. <laughs> so I was one of those individuals who was already in the realm of teletherapy just as a preference. <laughs> um, and so it was a nice transition, but um, the only change that I notice on teletherapy is that of course, just like any other transmission of sound, um, you can have errors in technology, right? Where you have those lags, um, you have those breaks in your voice, and um, as well, you're also losing those high pitch frequencies. Um, typically you see that over the phone or even over Zoom, which we always use. Um, so it's very, very common to see the same difficulties um, as you would wear it with a mask. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. I'm just, I've wondered a lot about that because we have um, people like coming and interacting with our daughter, but if they're not, if we're not that familiar with them or they're not here often, we will ask them to wear a mask and you just wonder like what it, that is doing, you know? Um, and it looks like they're already coming out with some research about it, but do you think there's going to be a lot more research coming out soon about speech language pathology specifically? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> there has to. There has to be. Um, if not, we're doing our patients a disservice. Mm -hmm. um, there is just too much change going on. Um, and we need to stay up to date uh, more specifically with uh, certain populations, right? Not every um, diagnosis or speech disorder um, is going to respond in the same way. Um, and just let alone childhood development is going to be completely altered by this pandemic um, in the way we interact and strangers interact, et cetera. So I think that there's a lot to come in this area um, and we need it quickly, <laughs> but research takes time and is very lengthy. So I'm just hoping um, that is can be very patient specific. Um, in order for us to provide the best possible uh, practices and treatments um, for our patients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, um, do you mind sharing your go-to resources, websites for this population? Oh, yes, absolutely. I love that. Um, so one of my most favorite um, things that I use for my kiddos. And I, oh, this is such a hard name to say. Uh, Bajorum Speech Publications, B-J-O-R-E-M. 
um, they have just wonderful materials um, to use, uh, such as speech sound cues, cards, etc. Um, they're very, very um, eye-catching, et cetera. So I love to use those in my practice. They also have a lot of free downloads, um, but they're really engaging for that population. Um, that is probably one of my biggest things, but I always remind people um, as clinicians that there's a lot of materials that are out there that are free, <laughs> right? Um, so just making sure you don't have to buy a whole bunch of things um, out of pocket in order to provide the best possible treatment. Um, there are many, many sessions that I do not bring out anything that has been purchased. Um, it's just me and the child. And sometimes I'm just um, trying to engage, interact, and just use verbal expression. Um, so don't think that you have to buy the top of the line um, eye-catching toy or uh, CAS specific materials in order to provide the best treatment. Um, a lot of it is going to be play-based. A lot of it is going to be high repetition, um, high frequency of sounds um, within a game. For example, uh, here it comes again. I'm going to whip out my animal toys um, that are very affordable, and I'm just going to have them repeat those animal sounds over and over. Moo, 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 nay, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that can be just the most successful uh, treatment, especially if the kiddo um, enjoys and interacts with that more than a playing card, um, right? Or a, a card um, purchased from a store. So um, it makes it a little easier. <laughs> yeah, those are great tips. Thank you for sharing those. What about apraxia kids? I've heard of that as a resource too. Do you use that? Yes, absolutely. Their um, Apraxia Kids is a wonderful foundation. Um, they have a plethora of information on there um, that a, a lot of the research that I cited today, actually, um, they re repeat on there as well. So um, definitely another source for people. Okay, great. So I'm sad this is over because you have just shared so much great information. <laughs> like I said, we'll include everything that she listed in terms of research and websites in the pod course handout. But if people are interested in learning more about you, where can they find and connect with you? Um, I am on social media at olivia.s.jensen um, in multiple forms <laughs> on Instagram um, and Twitter. And if not, um, I am currently practicing at Speech Solutions in Tucson, Arizona. And we, you can check out our website there. Um, but that's primarily it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Until next time. Guess what? This episode is worth 0.1 ASHA CEUs. However, listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs or a certificate. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs for this pod course, please visit tasseltogether.com to create an account, pick a membership level, and access the course materials. Tassel will automatically submit your course participation to ASHA once the course requirements are met. Remember to check the course details section under each course on the website for completion deadlines. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this pod course.